0: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, James Stansel of the African-American Studies channel. And today I have the great pleasure of interviewing the author of First Martyr of Liberty, Christmas Addicts in American Memory, Mitch Kashoon. He's a professor of history at Western Michigan University. And if you don't know much about Christmas Addicts, you'll definitely learn about Christmas Addicts during this interview. And even if you know a little bit about Christmas Addicts, you'll still learn some things about Christmas Addicts in this interview because he talks about Christmas Addicts as myth and how he has been tra- been portrayed over time in American memory. So I think you're going to really enjoy this interview. Uh, his book is published by Oxford University Press. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the new books network. The African-American studies channel. I'm your host James Stansell. And today I have the great pleasure of being with the author of first martyr of liberty Christmas addicts in American memory. And it's a book published by Oxford Oxford University Press.
1: And the author is
0: Mitch Kassoum. How you doing
1: today, Mitch? I'm doing great, James. Thanks for having me on.
0: It's my great pleasure. And Mitch is a professor of history at Western Michigan University. And uh, Mitch, when I saw that your book um, came out, I really wanted you on the show because Christmas Addicts is one of my favorite historical figures. You know, I kind of grew up in a time where we didn't get a chance to learn about many African American heroes or you know or, or people. Um, during those uh, colonial times or, uh, you know, the War of Independence or the American Revolution. So when I first learned about Christmas Attic, I was like, wow, you know, this is, you know, really interesting history here. So I'm so glad that uh, you agreed to come and spend some time with us on the show today and, and, and share some of the history of, of Christmas Attics with our audience.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be here. And, and your story is, is one, uh, I guess it's, it's part of the reason that uh, I embarked on this research in the first place mm-hmm. into Christmas Addicts because so many people don't know about him. Uh, although, you know, everyone who went to elementary school in the United States since the 1960s more, more than likely encountered him uh, right. in some early classes and textbooks and things like that. Um, but again, his story, you say the name to people, I've done informal polls and, and conversations, and, and a lot of people don't know who he is, uh, let alone why he should be uh, studied.
0: All right. Well, I think your book is going to go a long way in uh, introducing some folk and hopefully some people who are listening to the podcast today on new books in African-American studies will learn, and they can share that information with some some other people. And your, your so. book is definitely a, a good one, Mitch, and I, I would highly recommend it. Great. Well, thank you. Yes, my, my pleasure. So well, before we get into, you know, some of the main things about the book there, Mitch, I really want, you know, the audience to get to know a little bit about you and, and your background. I think it's important for them to know about the people who, you know, who write these books. So can you just maybe tell us a little bit about you and your background and what led to your interest in this topic?
1: Sure, sure. Well, uh, I grew up in Western Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh it I was kind of a circuitous route for me to get to being a history professor. Okay. I, uh, after I graduated from from college uh, with a degree in anthropology, actually, okay. I, uh, I took about nine years away from academia. I worked as a machinist in Arizona wow. for most of the time. Um, and it's there that I got more interested in history because I worked for this small shop and uh, I was probably the, let's say I was the least conservative politically of the people who would sit around <laughs> The break table and talk about events of the day. Right. This is the 1980s, there's Nicaragua, Iran-Contra, all this stuff's going on with, with Reaganomics, and so I started reading history so I could have some ammunition at the break table <laughs> to get into our political debates, and I sort of got the bug from there, and uh, and uh, to compress the story, went on to get a master's degree, and, and uh, uh, in the course of uh, going to graduate school and then going on to get the PhD, uh-huh. I just found myself gravitating toward African-American history topics. I didn't okay. really have that in mind as a specialization when I started the process, but every class I took, every, every set of readings that I did, it just seemed to me so obvious that you can't understand American history without understanding African-Americans' role in that history sure. from the beginning. An African's role in that history from the very beginning. Uh, so I just, just gravitated toward these these questions of uh, African Americans' inclusion in the American historical narrative and how much more there was to know about that. This right. was in the mid '90s when I got my PhD, and uh, uh, sort of, so the, the interesting Christmas addicts started uh, really with my dissertation research. This okay. was in. 1990s, my first book, my dissertation and first book were on um, African-American emancipation celebrations, uh, mainly oh. the 19th century. So how the, the important uh, sort of community aspects of these events in terms of education, political organizing. Right. Um, so in doing a lot of reading in black newspapers especially, I would come across these mentions of Crispus Attucks and, you know, uh, the celebrations of him. Uh, in the 1850s, mm-hmm. addicts celebrations in Boston, and it got me intrigued to try to learn more about him, and I found that we really don't know much about his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet there are all these stories uh, and the sort of myths that have uh, grown around addicts, sort of construction as a hero, uh, especially among african Americans, who at that time were arguing for their citizenship rights. In mm-hmm. the abolition of slavery, addicts became a very important symbol. That yeah, black folks were there at the beginning, the first to give his life, and you know the title of the book absolutely the first in liberty is the kind of phrase that uh people like william nell, william Wells Brown, various other activists from the nineteenth century mm-hmm. um, uh, would use to describe addicts and uh and uh it, that that's how it all began, I guess
0: oh, okay, well it ended very well for you with a nice book. <laughs>
1: Is very happy with the book
0: yeah <laughs> absolutely and i, and I
1: hope, hope the readers out there will be happy with it as well I, I,
0: I think they will be and the book is first martyr of liberty as you heard mitch just mentioned and the subtitle is "Crispus addicts in american memory so the first martyr of liberty and it's published by Oxford university press and again we're here with mitch kashun and he is a professor of history. At Western Michigan University, and he he mentioned um, his earlier book, Festivals of Freedom, Memory, and Meaning in African-American Emancipation Celebrations, 1808 to 1915. And and I think he said that was like the book that kind of came from your dissertation research, right?
1: That's correct, yeah.
0: And so let's let's talk a little bit about um, the process that um, it took for you to write this book you know I like to ask a lot of the writers and scholars you know how long did it take it's not like writing a romance novel takes a little bit of time and can you also maybe you mentioned you know looking in black newspapers and such can you talk about also the the research methods that you use and the process that you went through uh, to conduct your uh, research for this book
1: yeah sure Um, uh, as I said you know you you encounter so many things doing research Mm -hmm. and, and 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 actually, newspapers are are a really good example of this because you're looking for something in particular. You know, I was looking for articles about emancipation celebrations and Mm -hmm. what happened to them. But you look across the page and there's all this other stuff going on and uh, it catches your eye. So, I mean, so many things that I've sort of made note of, uh, started a little file and just would stick things in there and say, oh, well, I'll come back to that Mm -hmm. later. Sometimes (laughs) Sometimes I didn't, but I came back to Christmas. Uh, because uh, there seemed to be so much about him, and and, and also there seemed to be so much, uh, I guess, inconsistent information about him in scholarly sources that I was reading, okay. uh, making claims about him that seemed to me uh, unsupported by the evidence that we had. Okay. So I, I so I wanted to dig more deeply in that evidence, but um, you know, in terms of the process of research, black newspapers uh, remain. Uh, I think my favorite uh, type of source because Mm -hmm. of the breadth of information uh, that you get and the kind of voices that you hear there that you don't hear elsewhere. The process of research has changed significantly since I was starting my dissertation in the 1990s when I was looking at these newspapers on reels of microfilm. (laughs) Right. right? Cranking the handle or if you had a fancy machine pushing the electric button to advance the reel of film, by the time I was revising the dissertation to make the book in the early 2000s, Uh, a lot of those newspapers have become digitized. So now you can do keyword searches uh, online and just zoom right to the topic. Whatever it is, right. You you lose a lot by doing that because you you miss that experience of uh, serendipity, of seeing other things to catch your eye. But it's a a very efficient way of getting to the sources that are relevant to your topic. Mm. Uh, So by the time I started work on the Addicts book, which was... uh, I'm almost embarrassed to say, uh, a little over ten years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's been a long road with Christmas and ten I. Ten years, wow. Um, uh, you know, that, one of the things that was really striking, especially in 20th century black newspapers, more and more of which uh, had become digitized mm-hmm. by that time, um, you put in the name Attics, A-T-T-U-C-K-S, very unusual name, Sure. just about every any reference, uh, you find is going to have something to do with Christmas Addicts.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and, I, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of newspaper references to Attics Day celebrations, to Christmas Addicts High School being established in Indianapolis, mm-hmm. to community organizations named after Christmas Addicts, BFW Posts and American Legion Posts, mm-hmm. um, African American ones. Um, so, one of the reasons I think it took so long is because, well, a couple reasons it took so long. First, I'm looking at um, the way we what we can know about Christmas Addicts' life, but more importantly, what how he's been remembered or or why he's been forgotten at different time periods in American history. Whether he's characterized as a hero or as just some ruffian who was in this unruly mob who was uh, really got what he deserved, and you have you know, those and other kinds of interpretations out there. Um, And covering those kinds of changes over 250 years, Uh, he he died in the Boston Massacre in 1770, Mm -hmm. so coming up in a few years on the 250th anniversary. Uh, There's just a lot of ground to cover. And in doing the research, I looked not simply at black newspapers to get those references, because, you know, understanding how his... uh, His image has been developed in popular culture and in in public memory, not just what historians write in the history books, but what everyday people think about him or whether they think about him. Uh, And that's the kind of questions I'm interested in. How do we construct our historical narratives? How do we construct the story of the United States of America? Who's in that story? Who belongs in that story? Mm -hmm. And who doesn't? And who gets to make those decisions? So that's a lot of what I'm grappling with uh, with the book, looking how uh, how African Americans sort of discovered him and mm-hmm. to use for their political and cultural purposes, mm-hmm. and others in uh, different time periods have uh, either ignored him or, or uh, vilified him, or just uh, argued that he was a completely insignificant figure who we have no business remembering at all. Uh, so, and I'm, I've looked at things like uh, newspaper accounts, mm-hmm. public there's a, a famous monument on Boston Common, right. commemorating the addicts and the other uh, victims of the Boston Massacre. I've looked at works of visual arts, paintings, uh, drama, poetry, television shows, mm-hmm. rap songs. Uh, he shows up in so many places, uh, it, it, it took me some time to sort of impose some kind of order and uh, <laughs> to narrow it down. Yeah, just to just to figure out well, what what am I what, what do I have to say about him and and how these uh these constructions of his uh his memory uh have evolved over time.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's you know really interesting and as you were talking to Mitch I, you know, I thought about you know uh George Washington and the cherry tree, you know, and Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, or, or things with uh you know Abraham Lincoln wrestling and, and you know and all those kind of things. You know, and and it's very very similar in some ways, but also in some other ways. You know, not as similar. You know, those stories about Christmas addicts, at at least for the average school kid, aren't aren't told the same way. But you know, he can be used. You know, as you talk about in your book here, for political reasons or for you know cultural reasons or you know whatever whatever the case may be. Because like I mentioned earlier with myself, you know, when when I found out about Christmas addicts, you know, it, it made me really proud as an African American you know yeah. man. You know and I wondered, well how you know why had I not heard about this you know you know prior and you know, I went to school in the in the south, so maybe it was different in some other parts of the of the country, but it wasn't until uh you know uh, like I said a brief mention in a high school textbook, if at all, but it was when i you know I got to college that I really learned a lot more about um you know christmas uh Christmas addicts and um you know and, and you know his perceived history, let's
1: say. Yeah, and I think a lot of people have that same experience. He's uh, he, As I said, he shows up in textbooks uh, be- beginning in the 1960s very, uh, very frequently, uh, mm-hmm. very consistently. Only a, a few that I've looked at, I haven't looked at all of them, but, <laughs> but relatively few leave him out of mm-hmm. the story of the Boston Massacre. Um, but he's there very superficially. He's the token black guy from the revolution, basically, in in terms of the way he's treated in most of those textbooks. Um, uh, And you you mentioned the myths about George Washington or Lincoln or Davy Crockett or any of these other folks uh, uh, who who have had stories told about them that, or clearly fabrications, uh, some of them, some of them may have some basis in, in fact, but, you know, the cherry tree thing is, is the classic example of mm-hmm. people just made up because they wanted to uh, ascribe certain characteristics, certain personal qualities yes. of Washington. Uh, and that was famously done by you know, a guy named Mason, Parson Mason Weems in the uh, very early 1800s after mm-hmm. Washington's death, wrote that a very sort of mythologizing biography. So these are the kinds of things that I'm really interested in, is how does the society go about constructing those kinds of myths that get ingrained in in our sort of shared collective memory of the American past. Um, And everybody has different experiences with that. Um, But uh, I'm really happy about this book coming out now. Mm -hmm. I, I think... You know, initially uh, I thought it was a very timely book because I knew it would be coming out shortly before the 250th anniversary. Mm-hmm. I thought there was going to be some commemorative events. Maybe I'll get invited to give a talk and maybe <laughs> some books. Um, but but just in the past year, as the book's been going through the production process, mm-hmm. you know, it was done done being written uh, months ago, many months ago. Um, mm-hmm. But recent events. Uh, have really uh, made the book's focus even more substantively uh, relevant. Okay. Uh, I mean, the presidential election and the new administration's rhetoric of exclusion and mm. reluctance to distance itself from hate groups.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, the actions of white supremacists in Charlottesville and elsewhere, uh, making arguments about who gets to be an American, mm. who, who belongs in this society. That, that's really central to what I'm trying to do. These mm. debates about statues. Uh, which should be torn down, which should be reinterpreted, uh, moved to a museum, or, or what new statues should go up. Uh, to, right. to, so, so these all have to do with shaping public memory. And again, uh, certainly since the presidential election and, and certainly uh, since these recent debates about statues and, and uh, the, the hate groups and so on, uh, the American people are now very publicly debating Questions that are central to what I try to examine in the book. Mm. Who can claim to be an American? Uh, mm. a citizen and a patriot who belongs in this country and in this country's story and who doesn't belong? Uh, how does a sci- society go about determining who is honored with statues or other commemorative activities? Um, who gets included in school textbooks? And I look at textbooks very uh, closely in the uh, in the book. It's a, a really great resource because you think about what a, uh, a textbook is. It's it's a, a way of indoctrination for mm. people. It, this is the story. You know, when when kids look at textbooks and sometimes even college students, they think this is the story. This is it. Um, without really fully understanding that textbooks make choices. Absolutely. Who's included? Who's excluded? And that changes in different times. Um, So it's a way of of introducing our children to this is the story that you should know about the American nation. Um, So looking at those from the uh, 1830s up into the the 2010s uh, has given me a a good sense of some of the changes and shifts in American society. Um, So I'm glad the book is out there now, and I hope people will look at it to uh, uh, get a maybe a different perspective on some of these issues that are actually um, very much a part of public debate these days.
0: Absolutely. Well, I'm glad the book is out there, too, Mitch. (laughs) (laughs) Good. good. And and the book that we're speaking of, and I'm I'm here with um, Mitch Koshun. He's a professor of history at Western Michigan University. And we're talking about his book that's published by our friends at Oxford University Press, First Martyr of Liberty, Crispus Addicts in American Memory." And if you don't know more, much about Christmas addicts, or you think you know a little bit about Christmas addicts, you definitely want to check out Mitch's book because he talks about all those misconceptions and what may be true, what may be, may not not be true, and it's a it's a really really um, you know good book here. Mitch did a, a great job on it. And so, Mitch, thank you so much for sharing that information and give us some some background on the books and, and your thinking and what you hope to accomplish with the book. I also want to, uh, and we're going to talk about one of my favorite Texans here, too, I want because you mentioned him in the book, Doris Miller, Dory Miller. Oh, yeah, sure. And we'll get, you know, in, in the comparisons with, with Christmas Addicts. But before mm-hmm. we, you know, get, we get into that, you know, we talked a little bit before we um, came on air about the cover of the book. And you let me know that I had thought that I had seen this image before, but you let me know that, no, this is a, a new image. So maybe can you talk about that a little bit, about the image on the book cover?
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. It, it's a really striking image and it does bear resemblance to, uh, to a to a more commonly reproduced image from the 1850s. Right. But this particular image is uh, it, it shows for your for your listeners it shows a uh a very uh, sculpted and... Uh, and <laughs> Superhero-esque. ...really ripped uh, Christmas Addicts with his uh, shirt open, <laughs> carrying a club and sort of flying through the air toward these British soldiers holding uh, guns who were, uh, you know, getting ready to, to shoot him dead. Um, and it's a, a very vibrant image that was produced in the early 1970s uh, actually as a promotional poster for a movie about Christmas Addicts, wow. which was never made. Okay, um, There have been attempts over the years, uh, certainly since the early 1940s, and then again in the 50s, and uh, then again in the 70s, to make a movie about Christmas addicts, but these projects never came to fruition. Mm -hmm. But uh, I I encountered this image first doing research uh, at the Schomburg Center uh, of Black Culture in New York, in Harlem, um, which is an incredible uh, resource uh, for, for black history. Um, but I, it was a photocopy of this image, and it didn't really have any information about what it was. But there was a little information in the corner of the image saying what the name of the production company was. And so I did some Googling. So historical research sometimes can involve just basic Googling. <laughs> basic Google. <laughs> Sorry, don't tell my students I said that. Okay. But, well, uh, okay. They may be listening, though, Mitch. <laughs> Bottom line is, that to, to cut this story a little bit shorter, um, I found the name of the person who was president of this construction company, and I did a Google search on, in, in, on white pages. His name came up. Uh, so I, I found this person. He, uh, he's got to be in his early 90s. Wow. Called him cold, uh, based on the number that was in the, uh, the, the Google search there, and uh, lo and behold, it was the guy who is the head of this production company. And he was very gracious, and you know, interested in in the book, and uh, he, he said he was more than happy to grant me the rights to use it. So I yeah, awesome. sent him a film to complete. He got back to me, said all I want is a copy of the book. So I sent that off uh, a few weeks ago. So thanks to Mr. Elliot Geisinger.
0: <laughs> all right, Mr. Geisinger, you got your shout out here on the New Books Network. Thank you yep. so much for your contribution.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yeah, I was very
0: happy about that. Yeah, it's a it's a great image, and you know, again, like you had said, Mitch, um, I thought it was the one that you usually see in textbooks and other places. But now that I'm looking at it, you're right. I mean, uh, you know, Christmas Addicts is barrel chested here, man. He's looking like uh black Superman or something, you know, in, yeah. in, in this situation. So it's uh, you know, so it's a little bit different. It's it's a great cover, you know. And I would have loved for that movie to have been made, you know.
1: Yeah, I mean that that those are interesting stories in and of themselves, that, yeah. which are in the book, um, so, you know, some degree or another. Uh, in terms of, especially in the 1940s, uh, the movie Warner Brothers seemed to be interested in the mm-hmm. movie, and the person, an African American uh, gentleman who was, uh, I think, Earl Dancer, who was mm-hmm. involved with uh, the movie industry, was really pushing for this. He claimed to have gotten Paul Robeson to agree to play Christmas wow. Attic. And uh, but you know, the Warner Brothers ceased to be interested uh, at that. Time. So who knows, maybe with this new wave of black, uh, black history films that have been coming out of the mm-hmm. past, few, we'll get another shot.
0: Yes. And if there are any Hollywood producers listening to our podcast <laughs> now, I'm sure uh, Mitch would be very interested if you would like to, uh you know, co-opt his, his book or, uh, you know, get the movie rights for his book. Would you be OK with that, Mitch?
1: That that would be OK with me. Yeah,
0: yeah. I, I want some control, the editorial control. <laughs> we sometimes—you never know who's listening to the on the New Books Network, though. Oh. So uh, maybe it, it can happen for you. I would—I would love to see this this movie. And you're right. I mean, in terms of what you see out there being, you know, uh, produced now, and these movies, these films are making money about the Black experience in history. And That's I right. think it's, it's definitely time for a uh, Christmas attic story. Um, and so, hopefully, your book will help make that absolutely happen. <laughs> and um, the first martyr of liberty—that could that can be the name right there. Christmas addicts, first martyr of liberty. You can we can make it like a sequel. Well, I guess it, w- it wouldn't be a sequel to it. You know, he'd have to come back from the dead. But you know,
1: oh, Hollywood does all kinds of they, things. So certainly, knows? certainly <laughs> um,
0: they they do. <laughs> so Mitch, you know, if you don't mind, can you maybe just tell us some of the. Uh, um, you know, some of the important parts or important points or some of the really interesting things you found or that you'd like to share with the audience or things that, you know, people who are interested in purchasing the book, um, you know, that you can kind of point them to, um, you know, in the book?
1: Uh, sure. I mean, I can give a, a little bit of an overview of, of uh, how I this book and, and, and touch on some things in the process. Um one of the things that might make it challenging to do a, a sort of you know, biographical movie about Christmas addicts is that we know so very little about his life mm-hmm. um, in terms of you know documentary evidence right. that's verifiable. Uh, we know almost nothing about him. We uh, the sort of most standard story that uh, that holds up uh, is that he was born uh, a slave in Massachusetts in the 1720s, uh, freed himself escaped slavery around 1750 when he was his mid-20s late 20s and he sort of disappears from the historical record uh after after that um until 1770 march 5th 1770 the boston massacre uh for those who aren't familiar with that historical Mm -hmm. event uh, sort of in the, the lead-up to the American Revolution, uh, colonists in Boston and elsewhere were uh, increasingly upset about uh, British colonial policy, had various kinds of protests in the streets and uh, and uh, meetings and the formation of uh, committees of correspondence and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, some of the street actions happened in Boston uh, after uh, the British stationed a couple thousand troops in Boston. Uh, right. So they had a pretty significant presence on the streets there, and there was a lot of confrontation over the course of several years mm-hmm. with the Boston citizens. So this Boston massacre was sort of the culmination of that uh, escalation of, of conflict. Right. Uh, when a, a group of uh, Bostonians, uh, some say, most estimates have it as well over a hundred, uh, maybe more, started uh, sort of assaulting a small Contingent of British troops there were seven of them plus the commander throwing snowballs chunks of ice rocks uh, striking their weapons with clubs they fire and uh, Four people are killed uh, instantly and the fifth dies uh, a few days later They are buried with great uh, pomp and circumstance and respect in a common grave uh, in a you know, group grave uh Thousands of Bostonians turned out for the funeral procession. Mm. So these people were viewed at the time as martyrs uh, who were struck down by a tyrannical power, the mm. British Empire and its occupying armies. And so it did serve, at least in Boston, to agitate the population even more and get them to this sort of anti British place. Right. Attics is mentioned there. So the, most of what we know about Christmas Attics. Uh, really has to, comes through the transcript of the trial of the soldiers who were mm-hmm. put on trial for murder. They were acquitted, um, convicted of manslaughter, lightly punished, and sent on home. So uh, my first chapter of the book sort of lays out that, um, mm-hmm. that uh, basic story of the Boston mm-hmm. Massacre and the, and the little that we can be certain about in terms of Crispus Addicts' life. Right. Um, And and I start to, well, uh, moving on from there, one of the things that surprised me is after, um, during the revolution, there were uh, annual uh, Boston Massacre uh, commemorative orations or sermons given by prominent Boston uh, uh, residents Mm. uh, March 5th. Uh, Attics was not mentioned by name. Uh, in, in those uh, sermons, uh, nor were the other, uh, or very rarely were any of the other people who were killed mentioned okay. by him. But what surprised me was that a- after the end of the Revolution from the 1780s until about the 1830s, Christus Attucks sort of disappears. Uh, he is not, uh, African Americans don't seem to be aware of him, None of, no African American uh, sources that I've seen from that period write about him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was, sometimes his name was mentioned just in the context of all the people who were killed during the massacre, because the massacre remained a part of the collective memory of the revolution, but the individuals didn't. Then in the 1830s, when there's a lot more attention to uh, the, the people who fought in the revolution are now quickly dying out, and uh, there's more attention to revolutionary veterans, and a couple of works are published in the 1830s that mention addicts identify him racially, mm. uh, and some of these books had a, a pretty wide distribution. So uh, it's several of these sources that bring addicts to the attention of African-American activists who are, by the 1830s, starting to really ratchet up their uh, agitation for the abolition of slavery. Mm-hmm. So by the 1840s and 50s, addicts becomes one of the most prominent Symbolic figures used by Black abolitionists to argue that, hey, look, we were here at the beginning. Uh, The the first again that phrase, the first martyr of liberty. Mm -hmm. This is the first man to give his life on the altar of American liberty. You find that kind of rhetoric throughout uh, uh, a lot of African American writings. By the end of the 1850s, uh, in Boston, uh, uh, activists there start to have annual Addicts Day celebrations. Mm. They commemorate uh, his death and give speeches, and these things are designed to educate people, but also to spur them to activism. Um, so we're a couple chapters, several chapters into the book that now. By the time the Civil War comes around, mm-hmm. even though Attucks wasn't a figure who was part of the military in the in the 1770s, um, he is the Christmas Addicts that these folks create is a, a man who had this patriotic fervor burning in his heart. He wanted all people to be free. He was a dedicated, loyal patriot. Uh, mm. Sometimes you hear people write, people would write, you know, he was good friends with Paul Revere and John Hancock. Which yes, is, I've read that. <laughs> it's, it's not, I'm not saying it's completely out of the realm of possibility, but there's no evidence at all. Right. And, yeah. and as African Americans are, uh, are clamoring to, to fight in the Civil War, and eventually do fight to uh, in their minds both to end slavery and to preserve the Union, Attucks becomes a symbol of martial valor, uh, of, of military prowess, of someone who was not afraid to stand up to uh, the enemy and, and give his life in a just cause. So the, the Christus Attucks that emerges there is one that is really not supported by any evidence that we have. We have no idea of why he was in that crowd that day, and, and there's speculation on multiple sides. Some argue that he was just a, uh, you know, a drunken sailor. He, he did work as a sailor. Uh, that was that came out in the trial transcripts. Um, he was just some drunken sailor who wanted to you know, get out into the streets and make trouble. And he basically got what he deserved. Um, others, for others, he was this man with patriotism burning in his heart and uh, wanted, was willing to sacrifice his life for the freedom of others. Um, occasionally, uh, so, so after the Civil War, as uh, and, and toward the end of the 1800s, as segregation becomes deeply entrenched in in practice and in law by the right. turn of the century, um, public memory gets segregated as well. Uh, and, and one measure of this is uh, public monuments. In, the, in 1888, this monument on Boston Common went up, and that was really the last significant public acknowledgement of Christmas addicts by a multiracial group. Mm -hmm. After that point, it's primarily African-Americans who are preserving the memory of Crispus Attucks. He disappears from school books, uh, mainstream school books. Lots of African-American authors write about him, short biographical pieces, often making stuff up to fit their narrative of who they Crispus Attucks to be, uh, this noble, valiant patriot, uh, which, again, it may have been, but we really don't know. Um, over the course of the 20th century, and, and actually, you know, the textbook thing, he does not appear in mainstream textbooks between the 1880s and the 1960s. Wow. So uh, he, he sort of disappears there, even though black Americans are um, are busy. And, and this gets to the sort of the key uh, focus that I have in the book. The uh-huh. things I'm interested in is Again, the question of, of who gets included in the American story, who belongs here, who doesn't belong here, who do we honor, who do we forget about, um, and these things, uh, African Americans are fighting what seems to be a losing battle uh, in terms of getting the mainstream to pay attention to the, the, the continuous black presence and influence on American history right. you know, from the 1600s on forward. Um, addicts is useful in that uh, in that regard. Um, by the 1960s, the historical profession is starting to pay a little bit more, the mainstream historical profession is starting to pay a bit more attention uh, to African Americans, to women, to uh, immigrants, to working class people, people whose stories have largely been excluded from the story of the nation. So addicts becomes a very convenient figure for textbooks, for example, to easily just sort of stick in there. They already have, they're already writing about the Boston Massacre. Right. Um, and I've seen in particular textbooks, different editions, the, te- the edition from 1960 will talk about the Boston Massacre and the mob and so on with no mention of addicts. And uh, you know, a few years later, 66, 67, you'll have the exact same language with maybe a sentence added that Mm -hmm. the people killed was uh, an African-American or at that time a Negro man uh, named Crispus Attucks. So he starts to find his way back into the mainstream uh, after a long hiatus where he had disappeared. And uh, during the Civil Rights era, era, things things really get complicated (laughs) because you have many African-Americans lobbying heavily uh, to have addicts and people like him, other, uh, you know, significant African-American figures incorporated into school curriculum, Mm -hmm. a lot of movements in particular cities, uh, as well as national movements. Uh, But you also have, by the time the mid to late 60s come around, uh, (laughs) it's, it's largely a sort of integrationist approach that's fitting with the integrationist civil rights movement. But by the time you get 66, 67, black power, People are starting to some, some African American activists are starting to question whether integration is something to strive for at all, and uh, and maybe take on different approaches. Uh, sometimes Christmas Attucks was set up as basically a, a sellout, an Uncle Tom. Mm. Yeah, here's this guy. He he fought. Stokely Carmichael has the a, a, a famous uh, famous to me at least speech where he uh, <laughs> he says Christmas Attucks, the first to die in the American Revolution. He was a fool. He was fighting for the white people, and that's what we black people have to stop doing is stop giving our lives to the white people and start fighting for ourselves. Addicts died, but his people remained enslaved so um, uh, you have uh, African Americans having multiple views mm-hmm. of Attics, uh, during this time period uh, and, uh, and around the bicentennial, there's a lot more attention to uh, uh to the revolutionary era sure. six. And addicts becomes a part of that again, in a sort of integrationist sense. And uh, after the 1970s, that's where I look a lot at popular culture, at things like the attempts at movies, Mm -hmm. uh, addicts showing up in different songs on television shows, whether they're documentary movies or uh, or other kinds of films. Um, And it's just it's just a fascinating uh, story to me. to, to see how this one individual can be so many different things to different people because it's amazing. He's, he's kind of a blank slate because we know so little about him. People can impose meanings on him that, that suit their own exactly.
0: purpose. Right. That's some, um, that's amazing. Thank you so much for, for that Mitch, that really kind of, You went through basically the entire American history there, you know, and how Christmas addicts fit in. That's great. And so if you like the things that Mitch is talking about here, you definitely want to check out his his book, because there's even more depth and detail there about Christmas addicts and his place in history. And the book, again, is First Martyr of Liberty, Christmas Addicts in American Memory. And it's published by Oxford University Press. And we're here today with the writer. The, the scholar, the professor of history at Western Michigan, Michigan University, Mitch kashoon It's like I was I'm introducing you like as a boxer or something. Mitch He's like he's in this corner. He's he's, he's coming down. He's two and oh. Yeah. But uh, yeah, this is, you know, a, a great book, Mitch. And again, thank you for, you know, doing that that research. And, you know, I'm I'm, I'm really looking forward to. You know, going in and, and looking at some of these these things that you talk about here and, and, and doing some of my own research as well and going back and looking at like the movie, potential movies and some of these different portrayals over time. Because when you mention like, you know, you know, uh, uh, Christmas just being kind of added here and there in some history books, I think about when I taught American history, you know, in, in high school. And that's exactly right. You you could tell someone just went in and in- injected a little something here or there to say, you know, there was a black guy there, too, and his name was <laughs> You know, Christmas
1: yeah, Addicts. Exactly. Yeah. You have a little sidebar in the textbook saying, hey, "Here's here's what women were doing at this time." Exactly. Or, you know, just sort of add, add and uh, and be done with it without. And that's that, that's a big part of what I try to do in my teaching as well as my research is to to challenge people to to really reconsider the assumptions they make about American society and American history and culture. And again, as I when I was talking about my my graduate work, I just it became more and more clear to me that you can't understand this country and its past and its culture without understanding the continuous black presence here right. and the role that black people have played in defining who we are as a country uh, from the very beginning. And and so, so often that sort of adds something about blacks here and it, and it doesn't change the fundamental narrative. So what I try to do in my teaching and in books like this is to suggest that we need to rethink... Mm. Uh, the, the mainstream narrative of American history, uh, so it is more inclusive. So it it, it it doesn't just see slavery, for example, as this kind of aberration that's off to the side. It's a central part of defining this country and how it got to be what it is. And uh, and you know who's in the books and who's out of the books. And, and that yeah, so so yeah. Toward the end, I, I address some of that as well in terms of uh, historians are sometimes accused of revisionism. Right that uh, people have these they, they really cling to these cherished uh, notions of the American past, mm-hmm. and when new historical research starts to call attention to different facets of the American past or call into question uh, the moral the morality of, of some of the individuals who have been treated as heroes uh, over time, uh, they get defensive and mm-hmm. you know, Use revisionism. They're changing the history of this country. Well, you know that's that's what historians do for a living. We we look at sources. We ask new questions. We find new sources. We uh, we challenge the interpretations that came before, or build on the interpretations that came before. And and history is something that is it's not set in stone. It's something that's being reevaluated and reconsidered and reinterpreted. Um, and sometimes that does uh, unsettle people who have these cherished myths that they, that they like to hold on to.
0: Right. And those myths aren't necessarily true, even though people like to view them that way. Yeah. 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 Even in the case of Christmas addicts, as you point out here in your, in, in your book, Mitch, you know, there's some different versions of stories. And, you know, we weren't there unless we get one of those time machines like in science fiction. We're really not going to know. Uh, unless someone like yourself finds something that no one else has found, some yeah, <laughs> some exactly. diary.
1: Or, or, or. I would love for that to happen. But, uh, <laughs> people have been searching for, for generations uh, for more information on this guy, but uh, it doesn't seem to be out there.
0: Right, right. It doesn't seem to be out there. But maybe you may be able to find it, Mitch. And when you do, I want you to come <laughs> back to, to, to do a new podcast on the New Books Network. Is it a deal?
1: I'm, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: <laughs> absolutely. And, you know, and, you know, one of my favorite chapters, you know, in your book there, and I just want to briefly mention this, you know, a little Texas bias, because I do live in Houston, Texas. But you, you talk about Crispus Attucks and Dory or Doris Miller, the uh, hero from Pearl Harbor. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, during the World War Two era, uh, it was interesting. I mean, I I looked at uh, a good bit of uh, sort of correspondence uh, in the within the, the, the U.S. Uh, war Department. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had, they had sort of a propaganda machine. And, and part of what they were really concerned with is, uh, is maintaining African-Americans' support for the war because uh, there was a lot of controversy at that time. Why should we fight in a war uh, for a country that doesn't give us our citizenship rights? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, clearly, African-Americans overwhelmingly supported the war, but there was this double victory campaign. We'll fight for victory and democracy abroad, but we want to have that that victory uh, for oppression uh, and racism at home as well. So uh, Dory Miller, um, very famously, and he's been featured in in a couple of different movies, Mm -hmm. uh, we know a little bit more about his life. Uh, He was, and this is one example of, of the kind of exclusion that was going on. The military was still segregated and within the navy where uh, Dory Miller served, uh, he, the, the only kind of positions open to African-Americans were basically in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. They, they basically could get a job as servants, uh, cooks, mess men as they were called, and that was Dory Miller's position. Uh, but during the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, uh, the people operating the big 50 caliber machine gun on the, 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 uh, the top of the boat that he was working on um, were, were killed or, or abandoned their positions. He went over and took over the gun, even though he hadn't been trained on it, and uh, stayed at that post uh, trying to shoot down planes. It's not clear if he ever shot down any planes. Um the some you know mythology has grown around him too. Some people say he's shot down twenty. Yes,
0: I was thinking that when you was explaining. Yeah. <laughs> I've already shot many down. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um and uh he survived Pearl Harbor, uh was uh and, and as word came out it was really African American newspapers that pushed for they really wanted him to uh, uh get uh, the Medal of Honor. But uh, he didn't get that, but he, he was awarded the Navy Cross. The highest naval uh, commendation. Um, he was killed in a later uh, battle, uh, I think it was in 1944. Right, he so he came to symbolize, you know, so, you know, parallels between he and Addicts, you could push it too far, but they were both physically imposing men. Uh, Dora Miller was a large man, six feet, 200 plus pounds, um, gave his life in the, you know, the line of duty. You could argue Addicts did that too, I suppose. Um, and he was compared by black writers at that time. He's the Christmas addicts of this war. Um, and there were several other figures who were uh, treated that way as well. But this, you know, this idea of incorporating an African-American hero helped to serve the, the propaganda of the War Department uh, by uh, trying to build uh, morale in black communities. Right. They had Dory Miller's mother going around uh, on tours, and actually Dory Miller Uh, did that for a short period of time before he went back to sea uh, to try to build morale and support among Um, African-Americans. And so so he he is, and he again has become incorporated into textbooks in the story of World War II. You'll see Yuri Miller, you'll see the Tuskegee Airmen, and, you know, but largely in this kind of token position without fully examining the implications of, of them being there and doing what they did.
0: And, yeah, you know, so there, thank you for sharing that, Mitch. I mean, that that was great. I mean, there's definitely some some similarities, but there are also some areas where their stories are, you know, a, a bit different. But you're right. I mean, in a sense, you could say uh, Dory or Doris Miller is the Christmas addicts of uh, of the Second World War, you know, in, in some ways. Right. And his story has been been mythologized a little bit, too, because like you said, I remember reading, he's like, he shot down 20 planes, uh, you know, and (laughs) and the the other soldiers, they all ran away. They were, you know, they, they were all cowards. But Dory Miller, he came out of that kitchen and, you know, he was shooting down everything. And hey,
1: glad, I don't want to minimize the guy's uh, courage and, uh, and commitment to, to doing, doing what he did there. And actually, it did bring about change. In the aftermath of this, You know, there were people who were calling for Dory Miller to, to be able to go to officer training school. That never happened, but the Navy did start to break down its rigid exclusion of African Americans from combat positions. Um, so he did have an effect there on policy, and of course, a couple of years after the war, President Truman... Uh, issued the order of, uh, desegregating the
0: right. uh, armed forces. Absolutely! Wow, man, it's great talking to you. You know, Mitch, I could talk with you all day long about these war stories and you know
1: the,
0: <laughs> you know the different portrayals and things of you know f- you know from history. And I'm really, I, honestly, I'm looking forward to, um, you know, reading some of your your further research in the future. You know, so can you maybe talk with us a little bit about any future projects you have or? Or any places that you would like to uh, point any of the listeners to, or if they're really interested in finding out more about your work and the type, types of research that you're interested in and involved in.
1: Uh, well, sure. I uh, well, my uh, my earlier book, Festivals of Freedom, that mm-hmm. you sort of plugged, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, would g- certainly give a good sense of my work and this the way I approach studying African-American history through the right. lens of collective memory and public commemorations, and what those things tell us about black communities and activism and, uh, and this issue of, of African-Americans' uh, struggle to be incorporated into the American story. Mm-hmm. Um, my next project is, is actually kind of different. Okay. But again, it's, it's uh, something I stumbled on in African-American newspapers, started a file, put my notes aside, and I'm coming back to it now, finally. Pay hey, attention
0: young scholars.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's how you find stuff. You have to, Yeah, pay attention to the stuff on the margins of, of your field of history. But yeah, it's a, there's a, a gentleman named Charles Stewart, okay. uh, who was a journalist in the early 20th century, um, wrote prolifically uh, in African-American newspapers between about 1900 and his death in 1925, he used various pen names, writing for uh, the Chicago Broad Acts and the Kansas City Advocate, and, okay. and most prominently the Baltimore Afro-American. He wrote. Uh, fa- yeah, he had several pen names, but my favorite one uh, is the main one he used. It's Colonel J O Midnight. Uh,
0: <laughs> That's a name.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is. So Stewart constructed this sort of persona of J O Midnight, uh, presenting him as kind of uh, himself as kind of a country bumpkin, uneducated oh, they let me write for this newspaper, and I hope people are interested in the kinds of things I say. And he has this very kind of folksy way of of talking, but he was a very well-educated man. He had the Doctor of Divinity degree. He was a Baptist minister. He was the first uh, African-American reporter for the Associated Press in the 1890s. Uh, When the National Baptist Convention Incorporated formed uh, in the late 1800s, he became the first uh, press agent and for many years the press agent for the Baptist uh, the uh, Baptist National Convention incorporated yeah. and so and he he traveled look, continuously around the south and and sometimes in the west and sometimes in the north but mainly the south he was everywhere and he'd write these folksy columns saying well I'm down here in Little Rock Arkansas this week and you know uh, Miss Miss Susie Taylor is the teacher at the Sunday school and she's doing great things there and I heard the sermon of Reverend so and so and there's such-and-such such, uh, uh, black lawyer here in town. Who's, so he's uh, like, touting all the good things people were doing right. for the race. And also he would uh, say things like being a good Baptist, you know, people in this town are dancing too much. Um, so he had some cri- critique as well. And he'd, he'd weigh in on international events from time to time, and national events, segregation, Jack Johnson. So he wrote about all kinds of stuff. What I really like about him is his travel. I don't know if you got hundreds of thousands of miles over the course of a quarter century traveling by train. So I'm trying to piece together uh, a biography, but also to look at what he's saying uh, Mm. about black communities because he's in all these cities, small towns, and he's talking about the people who are doing good things or not so good things there, and. He he gives addresses at Sunday schools and sermons in churches, uh, uh, commencement addresses at at black colleges. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in his obituary in the Chicago Defender, he was identified as arguably the best-known man of his race in this country.
0: Wow. Because
1: because he had these weekly columns, and they were very consistent, not every week, they skip a few, but... Um, uh, hundreds and hundreds of newspaper columns that weren't short little pieces, uh, uh, talking about black communities, political events, uh, international travel that he engaged in. And uh, it's just an interesting slice of, of African American community life as he visits these towns and talks about the goings on. And I, I, I better stop there. I'm, I'm excited about this guy. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm glad I'm finally going to be able to get to, to learn more about him and figure out uh, his significance.
0: Well, it, it sounds pretty interesting. That may be another potential uh, a book that's picked up by uh, a movie studio. There, Mitch, so you might <laughs> you, well, m- yeah, you might I, have. You,
1: I got the title uh, also. You know, I'm good with titles. Oh. This one will be the Life and Times of Colonel J O Midnight.
0: Ah, the Life <laughs> and Times of Colonel <laughs> J O Midnight. That's
1: funny. I don't have a book contract yet, so we'll see.
0: Ah, well. I, I want to read it. You've sold me on it, Mitch. So that's, it. that sounds really interesting and, and, and exciting. So, And, you know, anyone listening, if you uh, think that sounds pretty good, drop Mitch a line and get in contact with him or contact the publisher and say, we want this book published, right? And,
1: and actually, anyone out there who, who has some connection with Charles Stewart, J.O. Midnight, has some knowledge about him, uh, uh, please contact me, and I'd be happy to... Uh to talk with you about him and uh and learn what you can teach me.
0: Absolutely, yeah. You could you could really help um Mitch in his book there. Where can they get in contact with you, Mitch?
1: Well, uh Western Michigan University, uh, my e- email address is pretty uh uh pretty findable there. Yeah. You're gonna have some text on the on the website We where are. this is, right. So Yeah, you they can, can find it that a, way.
0: Right. We're going to. Yeah. And just like Mitch mentioned, um, you can go to our blog page on New Books Network and you can see a a write up in a description of uh, this book. Some information about Mitch's background, you know, access to his his uh, pages for the book, as well as his Western Michigan University page. So you can contact him via email that way without any problem. And you can also click through and you can purchase your own copy of First Mart of Liberty from uh, the bookseller partner that we have. So we make it very easy for you. You don't mind that at all, do you, Mitch?
1: No, that doesn't bother me a bit. Thank you, James. All right.
0: It's, it's my pleasure. So, um, again, just to let you know, if you're interested in Mitch's work, his, his, his first book that he mentioned was Festivals of Freedom, Memory and Meaning in African-American Emancipation Celebrations. And he just told us a little bit about his uh, upcoming work on the life and times of Colonel J.O. Midnight. Now, I can tell you, that's, that sounds like a, that's going to be a really interesting work. So can we count on you coming back and being with us again on the uh,
1: African-American Studies channel? I'd be thrilled to join you again. This has been fun.
0: Yeah, I definitely want to uh, hear about that that book as, as well. Well, I know from our talk before we got on- online there, Mitch, that you are about to go into the office and uh, do some work there at, at Western Michigan, so I don't want to hold you uh, any longer than I have to, and shout out to any of Mitch's students here. Uh, you know, if you mention this podcast, shout out to any of Mitch's students. I'm going to see if I can get him to give you some extra credit if you mention that you uh, <laughs> listen to the podcast. So wish wish me luck, students. Maybe he'll he'll do that for you. Um, we'll but thank thank you so much, Mitch, for taking some time with us uh, today. I really enjoyed talking with you and learning a little bit more about Christmas addicts. I've you know I've learned about Christmas addicts a lot over the years, but it was really interesting and you know hearing your perspectives and the comparisons of, of, of uh, Christmas to, you know, to Dory Miller and, you know, how he was kind of used in the different time periods. So this is more than just a, you know, biographies, so to speak. It's really, you know, really good history here, Mitch, and, you know, and how Christmas addicts was used in the different time periods. So I really thank you again for, for, for your research and your interest there and writing this excellent book that, you know, historians or scholars or, you know, people who are just interested, like myself, can, can, can really use. So thank you so much for that, sir.
1: I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for for having me on.
0: Absolutely. So we're going to turn Mitch loose and let him get to work at Western Michigan University. Um, Thank you so much again, Mitch. And if you could say goodbye to the audience, we'll let you go to work. All right. Bye, folks. Have a good day. Thank you so much. And again, the book is First Martyr of Liberty, Christmas Addicts in American Memory. And the author is Professor of History at Western Michigan University, Mitch Koshun, and it's published by Oxford University Press. Check it out. And on that note, peace and love. And we'll see you and hear you next time on the African-American Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, James Stansel. Take care. All right, we're back on the african-american studies channel of the new books network i'm your host james Stansel, and a uh, big shout out and thanks to professor mitch Kashoon of western michigan university we uh, had a great conversation about his book on christmas addicts first martyr of liberty christmas addicts and american memory published by oxford university press definitely a good one for you all to go check out hope you really enjoyed the interview and uh maybe we can get that christmas addicts movie going right and i think uh Mitch's book would be a great one to be uh, adopted or adapted into a movie version. So I hope you enjoyed the interview and we'll see you and hear you next time. Peace and love. The African-American studies channel of the New Books Network.